teenagers and 96% of young adults, so basically all, are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about pornography with friends. Just 55% of adults 25 and older believe that pornography is even wrong in the first place. Teens and young adults believe that not recycling is worse than viewing pornography. Average first exposure to pornography used to be 11. Now most sources are saying it's nine years old and it's trending downward every year. Of course, it's not just the younger ones. The average age of a porn user is 35 and a half. 80% of all pornography view happens on smartphones. One in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors have been known to be addicted to pornography, admitted to that. 64% of Christian men in general and 15% of Christian women have admitted to viewing pornography on purpose in the last month. 68% of divorce cases at large in the world, not just in the church, 68% of divorce cases involved one party meeting a new lover on the internet, and generally that happens on Facebook. More than half say that the other party in a divorce had an obsessive interest in pornography or sex. 70% of the wives of sex addicts could be diagnosed with PTSD as a result of the relationship that they endured with a husband who's been addicted to pornography. The increase of searches for younger and younger pornography increases year over year and has been a triple increase in searching for underage uh, pornography, particularly in year 2020 with the pandemic. And it increases every year. Same is true for either familial or incestuous or educational or teacher setting or situations. Same is true for gay and lesbian and trans material. And all the while, teachers and activists are demanding access to our children to expose them to these things and have these conversations. Children are offered paths to transgenderism apart from parental consent by schools. They will hide those conversations from parents. Children and women are increasingly brought into sex trafficking on average at the age of 12. We know that porn use affects and addicts the brain in a similar or worse way than heavy drug use, including heroin and other opiates. And we now have a culture that's hesitant to admit basic gender realities that glorifies child abuse through pornography, transgenderism, or homosexual couples with children, and enjoys porn that has an 88% chance of involving violence against women. The point is not to make a, a mathematical case. The point should simply be, isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious? The point here is not simply that pornography is bad, that sexual immorality is sinful. We know that from the scriptures. That case is easy. The point here is that it should be self-evident. It should be self-evident. First thing I want you to see today is self-evident and self-deceived. Self-evident and self-deceived. It's interesting that for all of the punishment for sin in the scriptures, judgment that we see for immorality, that's explicit and straightforward. It says, God will judge these things. On behalf of these things, the wrath of God is coming. 
There's a stark lack of that in Proverbs. You don't see it. You don't see God judging sin in the Proverbs for sexual immorality. It's not there. You don't see it coming from the Lord. All of the punishment for sexual sin in the Proverbs hinges on the fact that it's self-evident. For the person that is consumed by it, these things come about. That list of things come about. The further our culture dives into that, the outrageousness of each of those things gets bigger. The divorce rate increases. The abuse rate increases. The pushing further and further and further into the younger ages of children increases. All of these things should be self-evident. Those who go down this path, the Proverbs say, are on the path to death. It's almost a sense as if God doesn't even have to judge them. They're judging themselves. God doesn't have to give death. They're embracing it themselves. It's self-evident. One commentator says this. It says, death is the consequence for those who embrace the adulteress. Much like saying that if you take a fish out of water, it's, it will die. Or if you jump off a tall building, you will be dealt with according to the law of gravity. It speaks almost as if it's natural consequences. It is self-destructive. The investigator walks up to the ME. What's the cause of death? Natural causes. This is the end of it. This person for the life that they pursued. Now the danger is that we're tackling fidelity today. He says, be attentive to my words, right? I want you to hear this thing right now, okay? Be attentive to my words. This is not a sermon about pornography or adultery. That's, that's not what it is actually about. It is not only for the men, all right? I'm not only speaking to dad. I'm not only speaking to the men. The sermon is about fidelity. It's about faithfulness. It's about loyalty. And not just to your spouse, but to wisdom. Loyalty and fidelity, faithfulness to wisdom to wisdom and to wisdom itself, Yahweh. So if all you hear today is that pornography is bad, you didn't need to come today. You already know that. If you, know, if you need to know that sexual immorality is sinful, the Scriptures scream it everywhere. But the unique avenue that we get to track today is not just pornography, not just sexual immorality, not just the adulteress, but fidelity to wisdom and the reason that we get to, to, to explore this in that unique way, and why I think this is so valuable, why we added it to this series, is because of this. The father who's giving wisdom in chapters 1 through 9 gives three almost full chapters to the adulteress, to this discussion. And he chooses to set up this character of the adulteress. As you read chapters 1 through uh, 4, you're hearing this, this plea for wisdom, this plea for hear my words, bring wisdom into your life. Don't depart from these things. The things that you heard from Pastor Matt on week one, the value of wisdom. But all of a sudden, as we enter into chapter uh, five, you have this new character, this adulteress, almost out of nowhere. Like, I don't understand why we're talking about this. And with almost three full chapters, that's 10% of, of the Proverbs given to this character, this picture of the adulteress. We have to ask ourselves, why? What is that picture for? Why does he give so much attention to that? Why does he depart from talking about wisdom in this beautiful sense to talking about 
it seems like, just sexual immorality. Hear this. This is, this is the, the picture that he's giving. He's saying that in contrast to wisdom, chapters 1 through 4 and ongoing, in contrast to wisdom, here's the ultimate picture of folly. That's the adulteress. Adultery is the ultimate picture of folly. He chooses it because it's the most self-evident picture that there is. I mean, he, you heard him read earlier just a minute ago some of those self-evident pictures from chapter 6, 27 to 29. Can a man carry fire next to his chest or his clothes not be burned? Or can you walk on hot coals and your feet not be scorched? It would seem obvious as if I were to pick up a campfire, I should expect one thing to happen, right? I will be burned. That's the only outcome. Or if I were to walk across hot coals, there's one outcome. I will have scorched feet. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. And so in contrast to the lady wisdom, we have the adulteress. This is the woman of folly. She stands directly opposite lady wisdom. And perhaps most dangerously, just like the sluggard, she herself is self-deceived. Just as the sluggard has more sense, he thinks, than seven men who actually have sense, he is self-deceived. In the same way, the woman of folly, the adulteress, is self-deceived. It's supposed to be self-evident, but they can't see it. In fact, they believe the exact opposite. And so what we have is this contrast set up. We have this contrast set up of what should be self-evident. Because at the end of chapter 4, you have this, right? My son... Be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all, uh, all vigilance. And from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your gaze look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Next verse, next topic, next instruction. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Chapter 4, verse 20, my son, be attentive to my words. Chapter 5, 1, incline your ear to my understanding. Chapter 4, verse 20, incline your ear to my sayings. Then what happens? That you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. So you have this direct parallelism in the Proverbs on what it looks like to live by wisdom and what it looks to live by folly. And it's not the woman itself, right? Is this talking in a seductive, adulterous type way? Absolutely, he names her that way, right? But is it just about that? Absolutely not. This is juxtaposed to wisdom. You have these parallels from verses 1 and 2. You have the picture at the end. Ponder the path of your feet that your ways will be sure. What about her? She does not ponder the path of life. 
her ways wander. You're not supposed to swerve to the right or to the left. You're supposed to turn your foot away from evil. But in this case, she doesn't ponder. She wanders. She doesn't know it. She's not sure. She doesn't know where she's going. Folly is that. It should be self-evident, but the biggest danger, last part of verse 6, chapter 5, she does not know it. She does not know it. Now, if you're like me, I sat in plenty of sermons in middle school, high school, and college, hearing sermons about pornography saying, here it is again. I knew this day was coming. I guess it's time to, to really tackle this. And you're going to have some kind of repentance, hopefully, before you take communion. Us, you will drink judgment upon yourself. But then the question is, what do you do with it when you leave this place? What do you do with it between now and next Sunday? Is every communion a confession of the same thing? Now, it could be from pornography. Of course, that's the one that's a topic today. But it could be anything else. Well, do you come in week after week saying, I repent again, Father, which is what you should do. But how are we actually saying, you know what? What I'm repenting of is folly. I am in some kind of self-deceived thing where this pattern is simply okay. She does not know it. The danger for wisdom, the danger for the gospel is that the gospel is folly to those who are not being saved. But to those who are saved, it's the wisdom of God, right? The danger of sin is that it's self-deceiving. That we find ways to rationalize it. Maybe you're the one who enjoys pornography and you have rationalized it to yourself. As one pastor I saw had said that he encountered, it doesn't matter where I get my appetite as long as I come home to eat. Maybe you rationalize it by blaming your spouse. Maybe you rationalize it by what the culture would offer. It's not really that bad. It's not harming anyone. We have rationalizations for all our sin, whether it's from pornography to the way that we spend our money to the way that we spend our time to the way that we view people to the way that we actually care for people in relationships to the way that we view our attendance at church to the way that we view our kids in school. We rationalize everything. That's the nature of sin is to self-deceive. That's what it is. And nothing is going to change for the woman of folly until she realizes what she's doing. For the son to hear the call, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge, else you be susceptible to the lips of the forbidden woman who drips honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but it's not sweet, it's bitter. It's not smooth, it's sharp. And how do we defeat this? How do we become aware of these things? second thing I want you to see today is tasting death. Tasting death. And tasting life right here. Marketing. Tasting death. My coffee. Yeah. Tasting death. My biggest fear today, and for the church at large, is that, like I did for too long, is that we view our desire for sex, for pornography, for sexual sin, 
as a problem or a weakness to be managed rather than a sin to be put to death. It's easy to be a Christian and say, I know those things are bad. It's just, it's just bad. It's just a weakness. It's just a problem. And I, I need to learn to manage it. And so, rather than letting our eyes look directly forward, as the Father tells the Son, our gaze being straight before us and pondering the path of our feet, we just manage it. Accountability partners, accountability software, the placement of the computer in the home, just trying harder next time, confessing just to relieve the pressure, but with no real repentance. The Christian cannot begin to kill this sin until they realize that each time they choose to partake of this morsel, they are really tasting death. That's what it took and takes for me to kill this sin. You see, we are promised so much in temptation, just as Eve was, and it's all a lie. It cannot deliver. Saw on our slide for confession of sin, there's a picture of an apple with a bite in it. There's so much temptation. There's so much promise. There's so much that's offered. But it's a lie. What does it promise? Her lips drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. Her tongue is smooth, the words that she gives. Her beauty, capturing with her eyelashes, it says. Her kisses, her boldness, her straightforwardness, she wants you. The treasures of meat, and you, you might think that's funny. It's chapter 7, verse 14, and it's tempting, all right? She was offering sacrifices, which means they were well stocked with meat to sacrifice. Come here, enjoy the bed, enjoy the scent, enjoy the servitude, enjoy the safety. My husband's away for a long time. Enjoy the safety, enjoy the intimacy. I want you, there's plenty for us here. Her flattery. And what does he get? What does he get at the end of all of those promises? What does Eve get at the end of all of the serpent's promises? Chapter 5, verse 4. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander even worse. Chapter 7, 22-23. All at once, he follows her. So much promise. So much offered. So much enlightenment and rest and safety and pleasure and enjoyment offered and so he goes after her all at once as an ox to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces his liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Just as Eve saw that the apple was a light to the eye and good for food, she took it and she sunk her teeth into it, expecting that crisp, sweet, Ripe, honey crisp apple, right? What did she find? A mealy, mushy, sour death. It never delivers. It never delivers. You will have no victory over any sin until you realize that you are eating death. In the same way the parched and withering shipwrecked sailor desires to partake of the seawater, so it is the man who gazes upon the adulteress. 
What's frustrating about this thing is that the idea of sex is a right thing to desire. It's a right thing to pursue. I know that for some of you, and I know that for uh, more proportionally women, are probably hearing some of this and just horrified. This is the reality of our, of our race. This is the reality, particularly for men. Those are the things that we want to hear. We want to see lips that drip honey, speech smoother than oil, smooth tongue, beauty, kisses, boldness, treasures, flattery, bed, scent, servitude, safety, intimacy. These are right desires. And just as any sin does, it takes what is good and powerful and true and beautiful that twists it. That twists it into something horrifying. A sailor should want water. But if you're shipwrecked and you're in the water in a boat and you are surrounded by that which can both give you life and kill you quicker than anything, as soon as he takes one sip of that salt water, he needs more. And he'll drink and drink and drink as it kills him. And so you say, what kind of death? Because his death, interestingly, especially as we go into this section, should help us understand that it's much more than just sexual sin. If what I've described to you just seems not a temptation to you, one, you should praise God for that. You have been alleviated from that very real struggle. That's a blessing. That's a good thing. Romans tells us that we should be infants in evil. That's a good thing. We, we should want to be as far from these temptations as possible. But you're not off the hook. The hook of folly. Because that's what this is really about. The most accessible picture is this idea of adultery. The person who participates in adultery literally kills himself in every area of life, which is what we're getting ready to talk about. But the picture is that for the one who chases folly in any fashion, kills himself, herself, in every avenue of life. So what kind of death? Uh, first, in Proverbs 5, 8 through 14, we see things like your strength, your honor, your investment in evil, your disease. Just keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others. And yet, lest you give your years to the merciless. You give your life to those that would use you and, and not get, show you any mercy. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength. I'm going to say this in a very Old Testament way for the sake of the kids here. Your strength, your, your bodily virility is given away and wasted on these things that should be used for the kingdom, that should be used for your spouse, that should be used for your legacy, that should be used to honor the Lord. But it says that your, your strength, strangers take their fill of your strength. You just give yourself away. Your labors go to the house of a foreigner. You invest in evil. You take that which you have and, and you give it away. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. You've been used up. You've been diseased. You say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. It's too late. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. I have no honor left among those that I would call my family. It goes on in verses 22-23, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. 
he dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he's led astray. Led astray. Ponder the path of your feet. Don't go to the left. Don't go to the right. He's led astray. Some other deaths. The vengeance of the offended (laughs) is a real thing. Their spouse, in the case of adultery, your spouse, in the case of adultery, pornography, there's vengeance of the offended parties. Proverbs 6, 29-35 outlines this one. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People don't despise a thief if he steals. AKA, they expect someone who's hungry to steal bread, right? It makes sense that he would to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. People don't despise him. as It seems to be the way, right? Yet, if he's caught, though, he's still punished. Just because we expect a thief to steal to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry, if we catch him, he's still going to be punished. He'll pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. And he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse you, though you multiply gifts. Vengeance is coming for the man who takes another man's wife. Vengeance is coming to the man who neglects his own wife. More importantly, and I think more well-roundedly, this, you've been hunted. What kind of death? You've been hunted. Proverbs 7, 21-23. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. I think this is the one that's most helpful for the whole picture. Christian, you're being hunted. This shouldn't be new to you. The picture of spiritual warfare, the idea of spiritual warfare and the armor of God in Ephesians 6, the picture of being hunted in First Peter, we should know that we have an enemy. We should know that we're being pursued. We should know that the goal is not just to win, it's to kill. You're being hunted. Folly is after you. It's chasing you. The path of least resistance is sexual sin. It's the most appealing. It's the most accessible. That's why it should be so compelling. But folly is chasing us, and it will come after you in any way, and you should not underestimate. Do not make that mistake. Do not underestimate folly. It is better at this game than you are. It knows your weaknesses. Proverbs chapter 7, 24-27 And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Why? For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. 
Woman folly here is viewed as a mighty warrior. You can underestimate her if you want, because this should probably be the last thing that you would expect, is that woman folly is a mighty warrior. In the same sense as a Delilah, she has great capability. You're not her first. You're not her first. Many a victim she has laid low. All her slain are a mighty throne. This one has particular pains to me. As I think about my time in high school, I thought I was the first. It turns out I was the fifth. This is the real enemy. You're being hunted. They know you well. All her slain are a mighty throng. You're being chased. You were promised everything. Come into the house of joy. But it's the way to Sheol. The chamber, it is death. Now, as I've just said, and as I know many of you have some experience, this has touched everyone in some way. Whether it's yourself, whether it's your parents, whether it's your spouse, there's folly chasing in every way. We've all been hit differently by it. And there's consequences for it throughout our lives. It is by the grace of God that we move forward. It is by the grace of God that we see life even when we wandered off the path. It is by the grace of God that we get out of the brush, the thicket that the sluggard is in, and get back to the straight highway. You were promised everything. Come to this house of joy, but it's the way to Sheol. How do we get away from death? Whether it's our own or whether it's someone else who's impacted us, how do we get away from that death? He tells us the way of life. What is the way of life? How do we get away from tasting death? How do we get away from those things that would kill us? How do we get away from those things that are hunting us? Knowing that we are fighting death, how should we live? The way of life. Two ways. Two easy ways. <laughs> Number one, our immediate context. Let's start with that. Okay, on the topic at hand. Drink from your own fountain. Drink from your own fountain. Inside that same context, we have this in Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. He gives the answer immediately in the first discourse. He talks about it in chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And in the first discourse on it, the first treatment in chapter 5, he gives the instruction, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. The parallelism there immediately is that why should you be intoxicated with someone else's love? You will be drunk in one fashion or another. You will be consumed in one fashion. In either way, be intoxicated in the wife of your youth. The picture here, I think relatively clearly, I would hope, I don't really want to go into those details, would be that you enjoy your own spouse. 
both, both ways, not just men to, to women. It is describing the woman here, but however you want to picture your man, you can, you can add that next to the passage if you want. Both ways, enjoy your spouse. Should your spouse be scattered abroad, streams of water and all the streets, should everyone enjoy your spouse? No. You, let it be for you alone, and not just for you alone, but enjoy it. Enjoy it. That's the huge danger here. Is that amidst all of our, I think, right warnings against sexual immorality, against pornography, against adultery, and encouraging our youth to wait for their spouse, that that would be the only cistern that they have, that they avoid death, is that sex becomes something that's bad. It's not. Sex is good. This should be self-evident as well, right? In the same way that by seeing the consequences of sex used wrongly makes it evident, self-evident, sex as good should be self-evident as well, the delight of the sexual union. That's why illicit sex is so tempting in the first place. If it wasn't to be enjoyed, it wouldn't be tempting at all. I mean, that's broccoli, right, for most people. But if it's actually enjoyable, that's what makes it tempting. So the delight of the sexual union in the first place. The mystery of the one flesh union. As Christians, we know how much is wrapped up into that, not just a monogamous relationship. I have conversations with unbelievers about monogamous relationships. They understand the value of that. But they don't see this, the mystery of this one flesh union, of what it looks like for a man and a woman to join together as one flesh, that my body belongs to her and her body belongs to me, and that in this way we image Christ in the church. That is an incredible mystery that has been revealed for us to understand. Beyond that, the creation of life. Sex ends in a creation of life. The intimacy that's there, the safety that's found in a marriage, the pleasure that's found with your spouse, the family that comes about as a relationship unfolds. This is the good life. That is to be enjoyed. That is to be pursued. As we read in a, a few of our books that we use for counseling, sex, particularly for men, is meant to be an engine of dominion. That you would pursue those things. True intimacy. True safety. True pleasure. True family. That should drive you to pursue a wife. To give yourself in building your family. That is... What drives you? It's a good gift from a good God. So drink from your own fountain. It's meant for you. The second thing that he gives us comes after these treatments, but immediately after the treatments in chapter 8. In our broader context, right? Right after he gives the warning at the end of chapter 7, her house is the way to Sheol. Going down to the chambers of death, he follows with this. Chapter 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom call? Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice to you? On the heights, beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. 
Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There's nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. What a picture that is. After three chapters describing the dangers of death, describing what it looks like to be seduced into folly, to give yourself, your strength, your life, your honor to something that just wants to use you, that wants to see you destroyed, that's been hunting you, to have Lady Wisdom answer the warning, saying, does not wisdom call, does not understanding raise her voice? She's calling. While you're being hunted, she's calling. Which woman will you answer? Why do you think that the adulteress is so straightforward? She goes after him, outside of her house, onto the street, looking for him. Plants kisses on him. Flatters him immediately. Winks at him. Draws him away. Lady Wisdom's calling. She's calling for you. While you're being hunted, she is calling. The things that she calls are sweet in the truest sense, right? The things that she says are smooth in the most righteous sense. What things will we hear from her? Hear from her. We will hear noble things. From her lips comes only what is right. It's not twisted. It's not crooked. All of the words from her are righteous. Wickedness is an abomination to her lips. Church, whether you're struggling in this immediate context or beyond, the question is wisdom. The question is wisdom. We know what is right and wrong. We know. It has been written on our hearts, all men's hearts, Romans chapter 1. We know what is right. We know what God's law tells us. There's only one reason why we wouldn't do it. We believe folly. We deceive ourselves. Take the instruction instead of silver. Knowledge rather than choice gold. Wisdom is better than jewels. And all that you may desire cannot compare with her. You think Solomon ended his life with his 300 wives and 600 concubines. You think he was the one that might have said, I know what it means to not heed wisdom, the wisest man on earth, the one who sees his strength and his honor given away, a different woman every night, every three years. My daughter asking me, didn't David and Solomon have more than one wife? Yeah, Solomon had like 300. She goes, that'd be really hard to remember all their names. You can't. And it doesn't matter. You're just using them. Solomon saw what it comes to when you don't listen to Lady Wisdom. He pleads with his son, fear, get understanding. The most basic form here, right? Simple ones. Learn Prudence. 
right? Oh, fools, learn sense. Learn sense. What are you giving yourself to? The danger with being self-deceived is that we can't see what's happening to us. But what you can see is this. What are you giving yourself to? What are you giving yourself to? What are you actively involved in? And then learn sense, right? No prudence. Work backwards. Why am I here? What has happened to me that has put me here? What choices have I made? What temptations have I given myself to that land me here? And ask seven people around you, seven strong men with sense around you, and say, do I see rightly? Take the sluggard's warning to mind. Do you think you know better than seven others around you? It's the same thing, man, as, as, you, as your kids do in early math, right? Triangle, circle. Triangle, circle. Triangle, circle. What's next? It's a triangle. It's going to be a triangle. Could it be a circle? Not impossible. Improbable, yes. It's not hard. Stop calling it something other than what it is. Get people around you that can help you see. It's not something that we have to do alone. We have people with sense around us. And we have Lady Wisdom. Turns out Lady Wisdom is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2, 8-16. Paul says this to the Corinthians. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. You may be self-deceived right now, but Christian, you have the Spirit of God. He will open your eyes. He will open your heart. He will show you the way to Lady Wisdom. He will show you what the Father would have for His Son. We, as sons of the King, should live in such a way as to not bring the chambers of death into the kingdom. We should fight those things. We should hunt what is hunting us and put it to death. This is not something that you can manage. This is something that you kill. Or it will kill you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for wisdom. We thank you that you have something that we all so innately understand in this realm of relationship and marriage and sex to be able to understand how clear 
It really is. That the law of God leads to life. Father, but the way of man leads to death. Father, help us not judge ourselves right in our own eyes. Help us see what it means to live in fidelity to you and your law. Help us see what it means to live unto life. Help us see what it means to walk in the kingdom. Father, free us from this idea that we can manage our sin. Father, you call us to kill it. Father, the unique danger here, as you've said, is that this is not just a sin against you, but our sexual sin is a sin against our own bodies. Father, it is self-destructive. Father, help us keep our honor. Help us keep our strength. Help us keep these things and use it for your kingdom. All of these things that we've been holding up in, in, in the wisdom of finances, in the wisdom of, of being industrious and not a sluggard, in the wisdom of what it means to parent well, and all of these different avenues, Father, help us keep that for the kingdom. By recognizing that we're being hunted, that it might be used for the kingdom of darkness. These are not new concepts for us. But they are things we easily dismiss. Let's not be seduced. Let's fall in love with the word. Let us fall in love with wisdom. Father, we thank you that you are wisdom for us. We ask that you bless the remainder of our worship, Father. Help draw us to you. That we might repent of these things and actually turn from them. Actually grieve them and put them to death. Father, you call us to be ready for a fight. We can't do that while we're wrapped up in civilian affairs. We can't do that while we're wrapped up at home, away from battle just as David was with Bathsheba. Father, you have us on the front lines and we need to have our short sarp. Let us not be at home. Let us not be deceived. Father, lead us in the ways of light. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.